This is Your Complex Brain, a podcast all about the brain, the diseases that impact it, and the path to finding cures. I'm your host, Heather Sherman, and I have the great pleasure of working alongside the team at the Kremble Brain Institute in Toronto, Canada, a leader in brain research and patient care. In each episode, we'll take you behind the scenes into our clinics and our research labs to meet the game changers of the future. And we'll empower you with the latest research to help you take charge of your own health. You'll also hear directly from patients who are living with brain disease and the care teams who support them. Join us on a journey to unravel the mystery of your complex brain. I love talking about my wife, but where do I start? Um, she was amazing. She was a firecracker. She was big personality. So when Allie entered the room, everybody knew it. But she was just such a breath of fresh air when she came into the room. Yeah, she was, uh, she was incredible. So we were up at our cottage, um, big family weekend that we, an annual weekend we do in January. There's probably 20 something of us, you know, cousins and little ones and everything. And we were there for the weekend. And um, the one night she, she had been having some headaches and stuff, um, but you know, there was a lot going on. She was finishing her master's. We had a two-year-old, we were trying to have another baby. She was tired and we didn't really think much of it. She had gone to bed early one night, and in the middle of the night, I felt her kind of shaking, and I thought she was nudging me, and, and she was having a, a grand mal seizure. I flipped the lights on, and, you know, horrific, and, you know, Emmett was watching from his crib, you know, you know not sure what was going on. I, I didn't know what was going on, and it turns out she had a large brain tumor and um, had emergency surgery. And then even after that, they couldn't stop the, the seizures. And um, so she was in a coma for about a week and a half and then woke up one day and had no clue what was going on. And um, yeah, we, we thought we were gonna lose her at the time and, and we didn't, God bless her. And um, it was a rough go, obviously. And um, she had, partial paralysis at the time but worked her ass off in rehab and got back to normal so to speak but for the the pathology had come back that she had a she had incurable brain cancer she had an astrocytoma and so that was the new beginning of a, of a new life for us you know trying to navigate forward from there you know she didn't stop living it was incredible to watch. She lived another 20 months and uh, we did some traveling and we just spent every day together. And um, it was pretty magical. I was really lucky in that respect. I never saw her cry. I think I'd, I did one night, she woke up from a dream and was afraid just for, for Emmett and I. Um, and that was the only time in almost two years that I'd seen her shed a tear over it you know she was just like i just want people to know what i'm going through so i can help others i want to you know document my journey and and just share it with others as many as possible 
it was pretty incredible to see she inspired so many people. I see her in Emmett every single day. Like she, he's got her zany comedic nature and it's amazing. Really amazing. He'll be seven in July and um, what a remarkable kid. I mean, he's so, he's so funny, just like Ali. He's my whole world, right? Ali and, and he were my whole world and she's always with us. So yeah, I'm blessed. We were in the Dominican last week and just had an incredible time. And we had hired a photographer to do some group photos and family photos. And uh, when it was Emmett and, and I's turn to get up on this platform and um, suddenly um, a rainbow popped down behind us. Sorry, I'm gonna get a little, <laughs> a little teary, but I always look for signs. Um, since Allie passed, stuff like that happens all the time. Where, you know, family photos, there's mommy. And, and Emmett said it too when he saw the pictures. There's mommy. She's gotten the photo. She photobombed us. So, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Our lives and our world are filled with cliches about, oh, you got to live every day. And, you know, but I truly believe that. I try to live that every day. Allie inspired that in me, in us, um, because you, you never know. We had a perfect life. Cancer came out of nowhere. So don't wait to tell your kid, your partner or, or your family or anybody how much you love them. And uh, just laugh every day, enjoy every day. Too many people waste time just stressing over you know mundane things and I know my my alley would give anything to have you know just another afternoon hanging around with us so don't waste it you gotta you gotta live every day and enjoy life you know there's too much negative stuff out there so just enjoy the positives and make every day your best day Rick Arkell is an old high school friend of mine. Hearing Rick talk about losing his beloved wife, Allie, to brain cancer at only 35 is heartbreaking. But sadly, not uncommon. There are more than 120 different types of brain tumors, of which a third are cancerous. Glioblastoma is the most common and most aggressive malignant form of brain tumor. Glioblastoma strikes suddenly, without warning, often in the prime of life. It's a devastating diagnosis for patients and their loved ones. But innovative new research, such as a blood test to detect and diagnose brain cancer, could be revolutionary in the field. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to Dr. Gellerizade, a neurosurgeon and scientist on a mission to cure brain cancer. Growing up in Iran, Dr. Zade immigrated to Canada with her family in her senior year of high school. She struggled with adapting to a new culture, a language barrier, 
and freezing Manitoba winters. That resilience has served her well. Throughout her career, Dr. Zade has often been the only woman in the operating room or conference auditorium. The first female to become chair of neurosurgery at the University of Toronto, Dr. Zade has risen to become a powerhouse in the field of skull-based surgery and brain cancer research. Now, she set her sights on advancing research to better diagnose and treat brain cancer with a goal of improving quality of life and long-term outcomes for patients. Dr. Zade, who is medical director of Kremble Brain Institute, head of neurosurgery at UHN and a senior scientist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, believes that through investment in research and innovation, we could see a breakthrough in brain cancer treatment in our lifetime. And we are so thrilled to have her here today on the podcast. Dr. Zade, you've been treating patients with glioblastoma and other types of brain cancer for more than 20 years. So what's changed in that time in terms of treatment options? So that's a really good question, Heather. Uh, It's something I ask myself and review on a fairly regular basis. Um, And I think you can divide it into technologies advanced significantly with respect to how we can detect a tumor, um, imaging, which MR imaging is one of the key changes that has happened, the ability to see tumors better on imaging in the OR has changed significantly, and some of it is really just the uh, optical technology that's improved. Moving towards more minimally invasive endoscopic surgery with improvement in optical imaging has uh, added a great degree of improvement. And then on the um, scientific side, it's the biology that's uh, changed how we view tumors. We understand the molecular biology better, that although previously under the microscope two or three different tumors uh, types were categorized under one, that they are now distinct based on specific genetic patterns that are altered, so genes that are lost or genes that are mutated, changed in some way biologically, makes a difference in how we understand the brain tumors that we deal with. The last piece of it would be, I think as a whole field and medicine in general, we've come to really appreciate the value and recognition of the quality outcomes for patients and what are some of the metrics of success that are defined by patients rather than by the healthcare providers. And that, I think, is an area that would dramatically change over the next 10 years or so. So patient-driven priorities that you would want to set your standards based on what's important to the quality of the outcome for um, patients' experiences. Well, I know patients are always the focus of your work. Um, Let's talk about prevalence. So how common is brain cancer? Brain cancer compared to other very well-recognized cancers, such as breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, is not as common. The challenge is that brain cancer affects considerably um, longevity, and also it affects the function of individuals. And so your life is shortened significantly more in comparison to other cancers. So the impact of it on the individual and the society is much larger than other cancer types because 
Fortunately, other cancer types, you do tend to be able to get to a point where you live with the cancer for much longer. But majority of the malignant cancerous growths in the brain, you do not. And I think the lower numbers and lower percentages contribute to the fact that the recognition for needing to put funding towards research on brain cancer uh, is, as a consequence, lesser than other main cancers. The desire to explore pharmaceutical treatments or new targeted therapies in brain cancer becomes challenging because the population that would be able to uh, enroll in clinical trials or benefit from it from a pharmaceutical perspective is is less. And so I think we need to raise awareness of its major impact on people, loved ones, patients, and caregivers, um, that despite the prevalence being lower, its impact is actually felt more so due to reducing longevity significantly and impacting the functionality of the individual. And the average length of survival from the time of diagnosis, unfortunately, still remains around 18 to 24 months. So significant impact, and the diagnosis happens 60s, mid-50s range. So a considerable impact on the individual, again, their family and loved ones, when your longevity is suddenly reduced to such a dramatic extent. Well, I know you're a physician and and you deal with patients every day, but it has to be challenging on a personal level, having difficult conversations. So what what keeps you going? What motivates you? Um, A few things motivate me, which is to help the individual before me uh, to come to terms with the diagnosis and help them recognize how this disease is going to impact every aspect of their life. Of course, I do what I can, as best as I can, to remove the tumor completely surgically to give the person the best outcome. But another component of what I think is my responsibility is have the patient come to terms and accept the diagnosis. Not that you ever fully accept it, nor should you, because it is a really devastating diagnosis. However, to be able to get them to a place as soon as possible and each individual goes at a different rate so that they can enjoy the time that's remaining for them. It's a very clear human reaction to go into denial at the time of this diagnosis and then to be faced with the um, harsh reality that it will limit your life in a significant way with really very little realistic hope at this point to change it. So that's my number one goal. Second, though, my number one goal and motivator is to really explore without any setback in negative outcomes or negative results, explore what can we do to understand the tumor biology better, how can we improve therapeutics, what new therapeutics can we identify, Are there things we can deliver during surgery into the tumor to prevent it from coming back? Are there opportunities for targeted therapeutics, which is biological treatments that we have based on our um, laboratory research? And are there ways that we can use 
more non-invasive, less aggressive um, procedures to detect, diagnose, and then use as follow-up tools for the patients. So in other words, using blood tests to be able to diagnose, blood tests to be able to detect recurrence sooner, etc. So that would be a second major focus motivator um, for us to keep working on this area. Well, that's a perfect segue that leads us right into your research. So you mentioned a blood test to diagnose brain cancer. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so one of the advantages of working at a powerhouse such as uh, ours at Crumble Brain Institute together with the Princess Margaret Research Institute is we can merge the expertise of the two worlds. And so in doing brain tumor um, uh, clinical care, brain tumor research, and having partners such as Dr. DeCarvello, who comes up with innovations and being able to advance the forefront of cancer, we were able to really take this to the next level, which is merge his discoveries of plasma detection for all other cancer types with the work that we do to see whether we can in fact use that same innovative technology in a new way for brain tumors and detect whether an individual has brain tumor, and then are we able to, in fact, distinguish, discriminate, diagnose accurately the type of brain tumor they have, and also look for those genetic alterations that I mentioned that are important for distinguishing one brain tumor type from the other using that plasma. Because there's a lot of skepticism uh, whether we get enough DNA from the tumor, genetic material from the tumor shed into the blood that could allow us to make that detection. And in fact, using approximately 500 uh, cases, we were able to demonstrate that we can very reliably with very good accuracy detect brain tumors, distinguish what subtype, and look for some of the molecular signatures. And so that was a really very uh, rewarding collaboration most importantly, very promising to be able to transform how we care for our patients and potentially move away from having to do biopsies for very deep-seated tumors, avoid an invasive surgery in order to make a diagnosis. And when next we look to apply this technology is to see, can we use this to be able to detect recurrence of a tumor when it comes back sooner than what we see on the MRI? Wow. And is this blood test available currently? So the blood test is currently available as a research tool. However, we apply that in a translational manner when we think it could help shape some of our decision-making for patients. In order for it to become a clinical tool, there are a number of steps that need to be taken, which is what we're pursuing. We need to demonstrate in a prospective manner new patients coming through, that we are able to accurately diagnose the brain tumors um, using this technique. The next is to then have this done by a different group so that it's not specific to just our lab. And then the third is to actually disseminate this knowledge, advocate for it, and allow it to be integrated into clinical practice. So a comparable um, situation is we identified uh, that if you analyzed a particular brain tumor type, which is called meningiomas, it's the most common type of brain tumor we get, in fact, 
majority are benign, managed by surgery. But there's a proportion of them that do not respond favorably to surgery because they come back and they have a high recurrence rate. And so how can we tell if one person's meningioma is going to come back versus another person? And why does that matter? Because if it comes back um, early, you would potentially consider intervening with radiation. But if it shows that it's not going to come back for a long time, then you would avoid radiation. So we investigated this and found that there is a particular genetic alteration, we refer to it as methylation signatures, that can tell whether a meningioma is going to come back fast within a five-year period or not at all, or at a slower rate. That was similar to the blood test, revolutionary in how we approach patients. And through prospective confirmation and validation of our results and dissemination and advocacy, we now have reached a place from its original publication in 2017 to a point where it's a test used commonly in our day-to-day practice, and we review methylation results for meningiomas at our tumor board every Monday. So the blood test will have to go through a similar process, similar type of timelines, but it's possible. I think it just, if we can speed up the process, of course, it's fantastic. It's very rewarding to see that when you work on a project with a view to understand the tumor with a view to then come up with a tool that helps us change how we manage the patients for the better and then see that, in fact, there is an interest and an adoption of your results is really very rewarding. And most importantly, to see over the years that we've evolved in how we manage patients in that regards. But absolutely an amazing feeling to know that All of the hard work to become a neurosurgeon, do a PhD, do research, actually does pay off for a good reason. And so it is really quite exciting. And I think that's what motivates trainees to pursue a similar education path, um, to see the value in it, to see the uh, reward, and to know that you are part of a bigger vision and a bigger direction to change a field and move it towards something more impactful and potentially leave a small mark on how we can um, manage patients in general. My name is Dr. Farshad Nasiri. I'm a senior neurosurgery resident at the University of Toronto and at the Kremble Brain Institute. I've uh, finished my PhD under Dr. Gellere Zadeh. My interests are in brain tumor surgery and skull-based surgery. When I was growing up, I'd always thought that I wanted to be a scientist, wanted to be a microbiologist, but I had some personal family history where some of my family members were affected by brain tumors and so I always kind of growing up came back to the idea of potentially going into medicine and potentially working in the either the brain space or the tumor space. My cousin, who's my first cousin, uh, Ramin, who's about 20-25 years older than me, had a what I now know to be a uh, diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma when he was a child. And we lived in Iran uh, originally, and uh, my cousin actually flew from Iran to the United States uh, and Canada to get different opinions and eventually actually had surgery 
in Canada for his uh, diffuse intrinsic plantain glioma, which is a very devastating disease uh, for children. It's a brain tumor in a, in a devastating area of the brain. He's had, you know, a very difficult brain tumor surgery by excellent surgeons and, and by all accounts had an excellent outcome. But just by the fact that he had a brain tumor, he was, you know, severely affected. And even as, as a child growing up, I could see the effects on him. One of the most interesting uh, research projects that I've worked on uh, is the development of a blood test to diagnose brain tumors. Typically speaking, patients are diagnosed with brain tumors by an MRI, and once you have an MRI scan that shows that you might have a brain tumor, you, you know the standard clinical pathway to diagnose a patient would be to do an operation and to get a piece of the tumor give that tumor to the pathologist who can look at the tumor under the microscope and officially give you a diagnosis of what your brain tumor is. Now that's a lot of work. You have to go through an MRI scan. You then have to have a very invasive brain tumor operation. And sometimes, it's, for example, in the case of my cousin, that tumor is in a very, very difficult location to do surgery. And sometimes you can be left with effects from the operation. And so if there's a way to really diagnose the tumors, and, you know, the specific diagnosis of that tumor without having to do a brain operation, then that could have really impactful changes for patients. Patients who have brain tumors and brain cancers are doubly vulnerable. So, you know, the brain is the organ that makes you you. It makes you uniquely the person who you are. And unfortunately, uh, we have not been able to make significant progress in terms of the amount of research and the treatment options that are available for patients with brain tumors. I think it was you know, particularly exciting for uh, me working on this project to be able to maybe change that dial a little bit for patients with brain tumors, bring in an advancement that might have real clinical impact for patients, uh, not just a research impact, but actually a translation to a difference in outcome for patients. So it was really exciting for me to be a part of this journey and certainly a lot of exciting work that we have planned moving forward as well. Dr. Zade is really an incredibly patient, supportive, all-around inspiring supervisor. She's really the uh, epitome of uh, academia with a capital A. And beyond that, she's really just thoughtful and an incredibly kind person. I, I feel very fortunate to have her as my mentor, and I'm eternally indebted to her for the countless opportunities that she's provided me. I think, you know, all things considered, that is probably the number one thing that drives her. She wants to see patients with brain cancers be cured or at least be treated in a better way than they are now. And I think that is, you know, the absolute best way to describe her. Well, you mentioned trainees. I know that mentorship is a big focus of yours and a big priority of yours. How important is it to you? I think mentorship is like friendship. Mentorship really is a form of partnership where there are two people, the mentor and mentee, that have responsibilities towards each other for uh, an outcome that's positive for both. The mentor benefits from knowing that they've taken somebody and launched them towards a career path that that mentee wanted and wished for. The mentee's responsibility is to be sure that they're open to accepting direction perspectives from another person who they trust. It's 
really rewarding, in particular for when our neurosurgery residents come through. You see them as a medical student. You think they have the right combination of skills and ambition to become a neurosurgery resident. You then watch them grow and develop and support them to become independent and go off and do what you've um, envisioned they can do. And they do beyond that. And then, you know, that's even more rewarding. I know one of your mentors was Dr. Fred Gentili, a neurosurgeon who became a patient after a diagnosis of glioblastomas. So tell us about him. Well, <laughs> he was just an incredible person. Fred Gentili was really a unique person. Um, he was a master surgeon. He was committed to caring for his patients beyond really anybody that I knew. He would work long hours, and he had this very unique ability to be accepting of everybody, whether it was the patient, whether it was family members, whether it was a trainee or a colleague. And he really did it with no bias. And a best example of it is when I was a medical student and uh, residence afterwards, my interest in skull-based surgery at that time for a female to go into skull-based surgery was really very rare. And most people would have tried to discourage me. But quite the opposite, without ever talking about this as being a factor, he provided me with support and trained me and did so without ever making me feel like there's something different, a challenge, a bias, and he was there. He accepted who I was as I was, and we worked super well together. If I needed to run a case by him, if I needed to run an issue by him, if I needed to just vent about something, he'd be available. So I, I do definitely miss him. Well, I wanted to mention, I mean, Dr. Gentili was also a big advocate of, of research, particularly after his diagnosis. So we're just going to take a moment to listen to a clip from a tribute video recently. I was operating on a, on a patient with a brain tumor. And I realized that when I was uh, under the microscope, that my left side was not quite working 100%. And sure enough, the MRI scan showed up these two lumps in the right side of my brain. Can you imagine? Somehow you think that you're so special, but you're not. Doesn't matter that I'm a surgeon, that I'm a neurosurgeon, I'm a patient. The final solution to my problem is gonna be not surgery. It's gonna be research funding, molecular biology, looking at the under the microscope to check the cells, see whatever. So uh, that's so important. I think really having a more in-depth understanding of the biological drivers, finding ways to detect brain cancer earlier, to me are essential. I think diagnosing it earlier, finding the biomarker that would tell us we're going to develop a 
brain cancer, much like a mammogram for a breast cancer. The PSA for prostate cancer is an absolute necessity because right now, by the time somebody presents to the emergency department with the scan of a tumor that we know is a glioblastoma, unfortunately, it's too late. And I think the shift that we need to happen is to know what is that one test that's going to tell us that you're at risk of developing brain cancer, and if that level goes higher than a certain value, you need to start getting imaging done, biopsy, intervention, because we do know that if we're able to intervene when the tumor is smaller, we're able to resect it, intervene sooner, the outcome is better. And so how do we get there for every patient? That would be really the golden ticket to transform how we manage brain cancer patients. What makes Kremble Brain Institute unique in terms of how we're able to treat brain diseases such as brain cancer? What's very unique about the Kremble Brain Institute is the intersection of caring for patients with research in each of the areas and having a strong team that are so specialized from our emergency physicians to our neurosurgeons, from our primary care nursing to our specialized nurse care, from our allied health to our specialists who do uh, functional mapping, recordings of brain activity. Everybody really within the team has a full range of specialties that can come together and care for the patient, think of the most burning questions clinically, and then be able to tackle these questions one by one together. And so we divide our specialty teams based on the tumor types that we have. There are a range of brain tumors with various genetic alterations. Our teams are designed and created in response to those specialty types because each brain tumor type requires a different approach. So we have a very dedicated brain metastases clinic. We have a very dedicated pituitary tumor clinic, dedicated skull base clinic, dedicated meningioma clinic. And in each of these areas, we have unique technologies that are designed to best treat the tumors and obviously the patients as a result. For example, our gamma knife treats a high volume of acoustic schwannomas. We have the laser interstitial therapy, which is the LIT in short, and it's very specialized for brain tumor surgery, minimally invasive surgery that converts an open operation to a catheter-guided surgery. So how does it do that exactly? So the LIT is a technology where you use a probe um, that's the size of a pen. It's inserted through an image-guided technique to the center of the tumor, through that same probe, laser is delivered and it destroys the tissue. That destroyed tissue is then suctioned out through the same probe, removing the tumor, the debris, the dead cells, and really essentially taking care of removal of the tumor. With this technology, we can reach areas of the brain that we previously wouldn't have been able to, and it converts an open operation where the brain has to be exposed, the brain has to be dissected to reach some of these areas where the tumor sits, to a closed operation, minimally invasive, with no brain exposure, no dissection needed, and essentially you can convert it into a day-type procedure. That's incredible. It really is a revolutionary technique. 
We also have additional advantage at the Grimble Brain Institute where we have one of the largest brain tumor banks in all of North America. We have accumulated and stored, banked, collected tumor from over 5,000 patients. This has served as a platform for multiple research projects within our institution and outside, placing us in positions where we can collaborate, learn from other researchers, and also have that guide some of the discoveries that we've made, such as the plasma biomarkers, and very few other institutions can, can do this. Could we see, based on all of these advancements in our lifetime, personalized medicine for brain cancer? Absolutely. I think we actually are. What I said about our methylation predictive uh, modeling for meningiomas, that is precisely uh, personalized medicine. Each person's tumor is analyzed. Each decision uh, is made based on those results. So I would say that it's here and it's going to increase and become more and more reality for all brain tumor types and for every patient. So absolutely, I think that is possible for brain cancers at the Kremble. You've come up against a lot of barriers in your life too, in your career. I mean, you talked about some of the support and some of the mentorship, but how have those experiences, especially as a woman in neurosurgery for so many years, how have those carried you through to this moment? My answer evolves. I think if you view every challenge as uh, surmountable and every problem having a solution that needs you to figure it out, then I enjoy that. And so I think that's what's motivated me to move through my career in life, figuring out how to get over a barrier or how to find and navigate my way through a challenging situation. I think that somehow must motivate me because I enjoy doing it. And in the process of doing that, um, I've learned something. I learn about people, I learn about the environment, I learn about myself as to how I can you know, ex- expand my perspectives. The title of this episode is Meet the Woman Who Wants to Solve Brain Cancer. So ultimately, what, what's your hope in terms of what you want to accomplish in your career that you haven't already? My hope really is that work that I do on an individual level helps people, whether it's with removing the tumor or, as I said earlier, coming to terms with their diagnosis. My hope is that the skill sets that I've acquired, I've reached that moment where my skill sets are probably at at the best that they would be able to perform intricate surgery, that I can sustain this for as much as possible. I hope that I inspire others to do what I do and continue in the pattern and manner that I like to conduct myself, doing neurosurgery, caring for patients, doing research. And I hope that the research we do does transform how we approach our patients and that there will be some memory of that so that after I'm no longer in the field, there will be a continuation of what we contributed to the field. And finally, what's your message to people who may be listening right now who might be struggling with brain cancer themselves or have a family member who is? 
I think the best um, approach or the best message, I would say, is to not hesitate to seek information and to not hesitate to talk about your experiences and the fears and challenges that you face because unless they're known and voiced, it's always difficult to know how this diagnosis and the disease affects each individual. And so I think on a personalization of medical therapy, how you travel through this journey needs to be individualized to the person because each of us have different wishes. And sometimes um, that, that that's challenging. And I think I've really learned that from watching Fred go through his diagnosis and get to the end of his journey. His resiliency is, of course, noteworthy, but highlighting to me that what he wanted was really very unique to him, as it is for every patient. And also, nobody knows how they're going to react until you're faced with the diagnosis, not even your loved ones. You really don't know how you're going to react until you're faced with the reality of it. I also would like for people to know that we are working on better understanding the disease, coming up with better treatments, and that we are moving the field forward, and there are ways that you can help contribute to this advance. And so you can turn the experience into um, impact that it will leave on the field for yourself and for others. Thank you for your honesty and for the work that you do, and we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. This has been a wonderful experience. I always worry that people are going to forget. I don't want her memory to be forgotten. You get into your lives and, and time passes, and she was such an incredible spirit. And I know it lives on in, in the people that we know and, and love. I want people to remember how strong she was. I want people to remember what kind of mom she was, what kind of friend she was. And uh, excuse me. Just remember her, her, her laugh. <laughs> She had this infectious giggle and, uh, yeah, just a zest for life. And um, she was unforgettable. Special thanks to Dr. Gellerizade and Dr. Farshad Nasiri for bringing their expertise to today's episode, and to Rick Arkell for sharing Ali's journey with us. If you'd like to hear more about Ali and Rick's story, head to our website at uhn.ca forward slash crumble and click on the show notes for today's episode. This episode of Your Complex Brain was produced by Jessica Schmidt. Executive producers are Tobin Dalrymple with Pilgrim Podcasting and Carly McPherson, with production assistance from Dr. Amy Ma, Twain Pereira, and Suzanne Weiss. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, tell your family and friends and leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening app. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another exciting episode. Have a great day.